The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside still waters. Thank you for joining Beside Still Waters podcast with Christian Javois. Beside Still Waters is the moment in our day when we seek stillness in God's presence, guidance from the Word of God, and grace to live by faith. This is the moment when we view horizontal living from the divine perspective. For the eyes of Jehovah run to and fro through the whole earth to show himself strong in the behalf of those whose heart is perfect toward him. Now here's today's message. We hope it will be a blessing. Welcome to Beside Still Waters. Thank you for joining me today as we continue our short series, When God Applies the Rules of Suffering to Himself. The Lord Jesus sets forth himself as the supreme example of the man walking by faith and going through a suffering experience. I want you to note that any effort, as I've said before, any effort on our part to extricate ourselves from what uh, is a God-designed spiritual paradigm is simply an effort in futility. Uh, On some of our podcasts before dealing with this subject, uh, we learned that suffering is a vital component in the spiritual life. It is the spiritual static element, allowing God to insert his grace, love, and execute on his promises. And it is the single most circumstance affording any Christian the supreme privilege of walking with God. And although suffering touches all humanity, It has a unique purpose for the child of God, just as it did in the life of the Lord Jesus himself. And he now becomes for us the supreme example of suffering in the will of God. Now, in our prior podcast, Cross-Raised, Self-Raised, we dealt with the notion of, uh, quote-unquote, finding my life. And what the Lord Jesus taught about the man that would save his life, that would preserve the status quo, and uh, or the effort to find significance and purpose, and tries by a variety of means to discover life with meaning, uh, if you will, by a self-originated path. But rather, the Lord Jesus promised that a man would find his life not by a self-directed path, but rather by the counterintuitive path of cross-bearing. That is, and this is important, cross-bearing, Embracing a trial in a variety of arenas with the firm belief and fixed faith that this trial, this challenge, this difficulty is the perfect will of God. And secondly, in the trial, to exhibit to every observer good works. Good works. So the finding 
my life. The way the Lord Jesus taught is counterintuitive to the way it is typically pursued in our world. Uh, people will keep a goal. They'll have a goal before them, a desired objective. And they will be strictly focused on that in mind and, their, and heart. And they usually have a plan with sequential actions executed so as to arrive at the desired outcome. But the Lord Jesus gives us insight into the way God thinks. And it is this, by pursuing an objective that puts a pause on my or your approach, and we are redirected to travel a course that is contrary to logic or reason. You see, we're being asked to pursue a different course of action, a direction that appears to, if you will, result in an outcome opposite the outcome that we want. And in fact, from the divine vantage point, this counterintuitive path is the very action that will result in life, which in the end is the very outcome we were pursuing. So today's podcast is a dive into this counterintuitive path as Peter sets it forth before us. And, and uh, there are three arenas that uh, we will find that trial, difficulty, challenge tends to occur and with it uh, the injustices associated with it. And yet, in spite of this, it becomes the direct path to experiencing the grace power and presence of God on a day-to-day basis. So Peter uh, tags or, or, or categorizes believers as sojourners, elect according to the foreknowledge of God, uh, people that are sanctified by the Spirit. Okay, why? Because we have the opportunity to take advantage of God's grace. He also says we are begotten again to a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So note, if you will, there's a certain nobility about our calling, a future clearly laden with hope and a sure, anticipated, imminent return of the Lord Jesus Christ. When he says in in verse 5 of the first chapter of his letter, he talks about a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So with this noble calling as ours, why then does he use the quote, a little while, a little while? It, it's a, you know, it, it, it sort of sets the stage for everything that is coming that he will be teaching about. But he calls it a little while. He balances all that this letter is going to be teaching us about the suffering Christian and he says uh, in verses 6 and 7, if only for a little while we are put to grief. And the question one has to ask oneself is, why is this interval of suffering deemed necessary by God and highlighted by the Spirit of God in this you know, short letter written to Christians scattered throughout Asia Minor? And I think it's because there is one element in the spiritual life that God must refine and clarify, and strengthen, which, if he accomplishes this, this 
element becomes the very catalyst that enables and equips any believer to transcend the gulf between heaven and earth. (laughs) And that element is faith. Faith. When, When our faith is effective and healthy, so to speak, it is absolutely necessary and it becomes the one element, the, the dynamic, the substance that brings heaven within reach, that clarifies our vision of some promise of God. It makes real to us the intangible substance of God's presence and promises. And not only that, but the Spirit of God within us affirms within us that the thing exists surely as the clouds above our heads exists. This is the witness of the Spirit that we are in the will of God in the midst of suffering. And so, in addition to that, the self, the flesh part of our being, the the enemy within, is rendered ineffective. We cannot rely on on our flesh for progress and growth in the spiritual life. And while we're going through trial, our faith is rendered, as God is working it, purifying it, it's rendered fully fit, without encumbrance, to, as it says in Hebrews, to see afar off, to see the promises. Faith, a healthy faith, enables us, you and me, any child of God, any Christian at any age, to walk with God. And faith is strengthened and purified only in and through the experience of suffering. And so when Peter lays before us what this little while path looks like, we begin to realize that we really need God and his grace to strengthen our faith so that we might surrender ourselves more fully and be willing to embrace the hour of trial in whatever form it comes. So, as a brief preview, let's look at three absolutes. Three absolutes in the life of the Christian experiencing trial, suffering. First, Peter sets forth that the prophets, and this is in the first chapter of uh, his first letter, the prophets who prophesied of our grace, this, this deliverance, this salvation we are enjoying, were also given a view that the Spirit of God revealed it to them, pointing out and testifying to them of the sufferings that were associated with the Messiah that was coming. But not only the sufferings, but the glories that would follow after those sufferings. Essentially, the Messiah had to suffer. This was the perfect will of God. This was the redemptive plan of God. Secondly, to drive the point home, he goes back to the original attribute that distinguished Jehovah in the law and the prophets. And that distinguishing attribute is holiness. Holiness. And if we are his called out people, It is incumbent upon us, irrespective of the length of time we have been believers, it is incumbent upon us, as Peter says in the 15th verse, that we are commanded to be holy in 
all of our conduct because it is written, be holy. Why? For I am holy. We are associated with this holy God. And then lastly, prayer. And Peter goes on to say that if, if we invoke the name of God as Father, if we're calling on God as our Father, if we say Heavenly Father and we bow the knee to God, then we need to be alerted to the fact that he judges not according to our person, but according to our works. And since his judgment, which is holy, is executed on the basis of his holiness, and his focus is only on our works, then by necessity, it is incumbent upon us to live a life in the fear of God's holiness. And we can find several uh, New Testament, I'm sorry, Old Testament examples of people who disregarded the holiness of God and it cost them dearly. So let me ask you, where, where does this leave us with respect to the little while of suffering? Where does it leave us? We have a call of the master, the author, and finisher of our faith to walk in the path of suffering. And this is what Peter is going to bring and highlight to us. Christ has and must become, the Lord Jesus Christ must become the focal point that we walk to. The same way Peter did that stormy night when he walked on the water to go to the Lord Jesus Christ. In the same way we walk this path with our eyes fixed on him who went before us. Secondly, there's sort of a, a symbiotic relationship between a person who is walking with God in holiness and Communion, prayer, time alone with God. You can't separate the two. Because I'm telling you, when you are in the midst of a difficult situation that is ongoing, you and I are going to need time to resort to his presence for grace and strength and wisdom that we might know what to do and that we might live in such a manner that brings glory to God. These two, holiness and, and communion, are wedded together and becomes a vital component in the midst of suffering. And conversely, holy living affirms that we will be heard when we offer our petitions to God. Stated a, a different way, and I've often said to associates and friends, that, for the Christian, if getting answers to my prayers is the most important dynamic in my life, then it behooves me to walk with God in holiness. It behooves me to walk with God in holiness. And I am assured that God will hear my petitions for grace in the hour of trial. For example, we are told in Psalm 66, verse 18, that if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. Holiness is critical. And of course, Peter goes on to say in the first chapter that concerning our Lord Jesus Christ, that he is precious to us. But to those who are disobedient, to those who disregard the holiness of God, the stone which the builders cast away as worthless, this has become the head of the corner. 
and in the construction of that time, the cornerstone sort of is like the capstone for the arches. It, it, it's the finishing stone. But there was a stone that the builders looked at and said, well, this is a worthless piece of stone, only to find in the end, it's the capstone. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. So Peter likens the suffering experience in the life of the Lord Jesus analogous to a stone which builders cast away as worthless. The Spirit of God is setting the stage for us for what will be our experience as we follow the Lord Jesus Christ in holiness while maintaining communion with God as the very behavior that will sustain us in the midst of suffering. Let's talk a little bit about the circumstances. Now, we're, we're, we are often challenged by the need to maintain standards in the Christian life. And standards become the, the, uh, the evidence <laughs> that we are living holy lives. And I recall as a youth before my conversion that Christians were typically identified in particular by their attire or their activities. And then as the years passed and I became a Christian, and my, by my observation, uh, the focus sort of morphed into specifics such as not wearing, you know, excessive makeup or consuming or not consuming certain foods or certain beverages, for example. And uh, as is often the case over the years, standards changed. And the point I'm really making here is that over the years, standards have changed to the point where what was allowed or disallowed 30 years ago is no longer allowed or disallowed. And yet the devotee, the believer, the Christian is still mandated to maintain a life of holiness. So when we determine what holiness looks like based on arbitrary standards, it sometimes creates confusion simply because standards change. But Peter, under the direction of the Holy Spirit, sets forth before us an unchanging standard, which is holiness. Now, I'm going to define it a little more specifically. But when we examine the scriptures to identify what the spirit of obedience looks like, and the necessary precepts that are joined to obedience, we will also see that there's an inward disposition that is acceptable to God. And Peter will touch on it, and we will be exhorted to walk this way. So the second and, and, and closely related fact is that communion with God. Okay? Communion with God. We talked about holiness, but communion with God supports and assures that I'm going to receive answers to my petitions as long as I'm maintaining holiness. Not a changing standard, but it's the very stamp on my life, the very inward position and disposition. This is closely related to holiness or the way in which I live, in my heart affections, in my motives, as these will directly impact God's willingness and inclination to answer affirmatively. 
If we want a yes answer to our prayers, to our petitions, then we must be sensitive to the indwelling presence of the Spirit of God and not just an ordinary or arbitrary standard, but God's presence itself. And you say, well, how do I know what God is like? Well, we have the scriptures to rely on. And so we can, and this is important, we can baseline the very conduct and inner disposition and have a clear understanding of what standards please God. What keeps the portals of heaven open to my petitions? And if I'm concerned that God hears my prayer, and just as we said earlier, if I regard iniquity in my heart, then I need to be clear whether or not I am regarding something or behavior or pleasure that clearly is an offense to the Spirit of God, which ultimately will hinder answers to prayer. And then lastly, there's a final component to this dynamic that becomes vital. So there's holiness, there's communion with God, and lastly, there's good works. Good works. This trifecta of holiness, prayer, and good works are needful in walking with God during the little while experience. Holiness, good works, communion. Now, there are three arenas in in which we find that all Christians will, at some point, experience pushback, difficulty, challenge. But they become the opportunities for demonstrating good works. And that is, firstly, the flesh, the inward arena, and then human institutions, secondly, and then last but not least, within the employment arena. And these are the areas in which For the Christian, we always find ourselves faced with challenge, especially inwardly or externally. (laughs) These three areas will always be a challenge to holiness, to fidelity in walking with God. But they also become the very arena where good works become the standard behavior for the Christian. And I want to say this is non-negotiable. These three elements are non-negotiable. Holiness, communion with God, and a demonstration of good works in the fear of God. So let me ask you, who are we? And what is our purpose? Peter says we're a holy priesthood of believers, a royal priesthood, a heavenly people that will serve God in glory with bodies fashioned like that of the Lord Jesus Christ. But while on earth, well, what are we? We're a holy nation. This is the perspective of the majesty on high. And that being the case, how should I live? Well, let's deal with the first arena, fleshly lust. In chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Okay, he gives, uh, he gives exhortations uh, to believers. And he says, I exhort you as strangers and sojourners to abstain from fleshly lusts, which war against the soul, having your conduct honest among the Gentiles. That as to that in which they speak against you as evildoers, they may, through your good works, themselves witnessing them, glorify God in the day of visitation. So that said, in this first arena, Peter exhorts believers, identifying all of us as strangers, aliens, sojourners, 
Similar to Abraham, when he was uh, in the land of Canaan, uh, having no certain dwelling place. And so our fleshly lust, desires springing within our fallen nature, are often contrary to the dictates of a holy life. This is the first enemy and the first arena in which failure often occurs. Peter says that they war against the soul. In other words, that's their nature. This is what disables us and often causes us to appear dishonest in the sight of non-Christians. Fleshly lusts, by their very nature, sort of have a, a militaristic disposition against a holy life. Paul even says it in Romans 7. We won't go to, go to it right now, but essentially he lamented the fact that <laughs> the things that he would do, he found that there's a law within him preventing him. And the things he tried to avoid doing, this law was operative, that when he would, it contradicted him and, in a sense, held him captive. Fleshly lusts, by their very nature, are militaristic in their disposition against holiness. They will actively wage resistance, and that's how it feels, against any desire to walk with God. It's like the Old Testament examples of the Philistines or the Amalekites. These people groups constantly fought with Israel, constantly resisted them. So too are fleshly desires. And so, my friend, the antidote, the weapon against the flesh is really very simple. Good works. And you say, well, what are good works? <laughs> well, good works are behaviors that we exhibit that contradict the internal and external inclination to be dishonest. Dishonest in the way we speak, the way we live, in our pleasures, etc., and when you or I demonstrate clearly honest behavior, there's going to be pushback, suffering. We're going to feel the heat. People not sharing our faith will often assess us as being evil. They will assign evil to our character. And that's what honesty does. It creates tension among people who are not inclined to be honest. And these very people will assess that we are evildoers. We're criminals. <laughs> now, they're not going to come out and call you a criminal. But the way they begin to treat you, you're going against the grain. You're, you're going upstream. You are resisting the status quo. Good works are behaviors we exhibit that contradict our natural inclination to live an unholy life. And these people watch our lives. They observe us like an overseer, observing his workers to see what they're doing. They're paying careful attention to our living. And when we are exhibiting good works, we are glorifying God. Although they call us evildoers, they are unknowingly bringing glory to God by observing our good works and concluding in their hearts, this is good. Now, they're not going to tell you, but in their hearts, they're realizing this is good. And once that is spoken in the heart, 
This is put to your account and my account in the day when Christ establishes his reign and men are called into account. It will be brought to light in the judgment. And as Christ became a stone rejected by the builders, but yet it was a worthwhile and precious stone in the same manner as we walk putting to death our fleshly lusts, which are warring against our souls, they will acknowledge in a future day before God that our works were in fact good. Human institutions, second area, the cosmos. And Peter deals with this in the second chapter, 13 to about the 15th verse. And Peter calls this second arena of challenge human institutions. The organizations, the rules and regulations, the ordered cosmos is the second and most, well, I would suggest, the largest arena that separates light from darkness. He exhorts us to submit ourselves, to arrange ourselves under these rules. Now, this, this gets a little grave for some people. People hesitate to use the term, for example, obey. But we are morally bound to do just that because God commands it. In fact, the great Old Testament example is that of Daniel, who subjected himself to pagan leaders until he reached the point, of course, in his life where he was asked to disobey God and not pray to God, but only to the king. And he disobeyed and would not satisfy you know, the, the whims of his enemies. And that is where we determine as well, not to cross a line. We are commanded to be in obedience to human institutions, but we are not commanded to disobey God in that process. So we need to have a clear understanding of what is expected of us. Now, these ordinances of men are, are, are guidelines, laws designated to create structure and order in society. They are institutions. And we are, we are submitting, not for our sake or our own interests, but as in the name of the Lord Jesus, as Peter says, for his sake, for the Lord's sake. And the reason I do what I do or that you do what you do is for the pleasure of the Lord Jesus Christ and for his glory, not my own. Why? Well, because we are sojourners. We're strangers in a foreign land. Our citizenship is in heaven. And hence, we are called upon to conduct ourselves as Abraham did while he was yet in Canaan. He dug wells because that's how they would sustain themselves with water. And, he, and, and so did the peoples of the land. And Isaac did the same. But when conflict arose on account of these wells, what did Isaac do? He didn't fight with them. He moved on. <laughs> and rather than fight, we move on. We are called upon to do likewise. So what is God's objective in all this? Well, here God is commanding us to demonstrate good works. And what is it that he wants us to do? Well, it's simply this. The tool that God uses in this arena in order to teach agnostics about his existence, his grace, is Good works, works of well-doing, morally sound, beneficial works, teaches people who are between two opinions about the existence of God, they see and experience 
goodness from us. In fact, Ephesians 5.1 summarizes it clearly. That our Lord Jesus Christ gave himself an offering and a sacrifice to God as a sweet aroma. But we were the beneficiaries of that obedience. So too, by good works, we are simply administering profit, benefit, blessing to people. They become the beneficiaries of our obedience to God. A closely associated uh, objective again. And Peter says it clearly in verse 15, that by good works, we silence their ignorance. We silence their ignorance. In other words, they will never be able to claim that they have no understanding of what God's grace is like. Why? Because when they treated us or spoke against us as evildoers, they will, by our good works, glorify God in a coming day. They will see what grace is like. When they treated us poorly, we respond with kindness, or at least we should. We should. In the face of moral resistance, we demonstrate grace. And they benefit or should benefit from our presence. Analogous to uh, Jesus saying that, if you recall, he challenged us in, in, God, in uh, Matthew's gospel to be perfect as our heavenly father is perfect. In that he causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. He's impartial. And good works are like that. Our well-doing, our good works, our actions that are beneficial to people, irrespective of their dispositions towards us, awakens any agnostic to the existence of God. They can no longer claim ignorance of the grace of God and the goodness of God because they see in our conduct good works. And this becomes clear evidence of a life and persuasion that is not of this world doesn't belong to this cosmos. And so in these institutions, there are people who are, for the most part, agnostics. And they may have a religious or spiritual persuasion, but the underpinning is that of an unawareness of the existence and involvement of God in their day-to-day affairs. And then lastly, employment. We are called upon in the employment arena, in the 17th and 20th verse, to display equanimity in our service to our employers, regardless of their dispositions, to the good and gentle or the ill-tempered. And the key objective here in the employment arena is to display what the grace of God is like. And the only way to do this, I repeat, the only way to do this while maintaining a clear conscience before God is by enduring Grief, even if it entails suffering unjustly. Twice, Peter says, this is acceptable with God. This is acceptable behavior. So the will of God is clear. There are only two scenarios under which a person, a Christian, is called to suffer. If they're receiving just retribution for bad conduct or if they're receiving unjust retribution for good conduct. That's it. Only two scenarios. And so this approach to circumstances in the employment arena, I know it's foreign in our 21st century. 
Okay, in the 21st century workplace, no, people are not doing this. People are strong for self-advocating. Uh, you know, people are, are strong for, 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 you know, getting their rights. Now, this is not to suggest that this approach is unwarranted or unjustified. But we are talking about the Christian experiencing the grace of God and becoming a clear, identifiable, evidential witness in a chaotic, dark cosmos. And just at the point when we say to ourselves, this is impossible to live this way, how am I going to navigate through these circumstances successfully? And the Holy Spirit arrests our attention in this way. We know all men suffer, but the purpose, as I said before, of suffering for the Christian is different in purpose and result. The Lord Jesus alludes to the result when he says to his disciples that after he's killed, he will be raised the third day and so forth. Suffering simply doesn't end with the suffering itself. It has an ultimate purpose, a blessing, a growth. God is doing something in our lives. And that is where the believer's faith must be fixed at all times. The end of the experience. The objective will be realized after the little while is finished. And so Peter says, for to this, and this is the key, for to this you have been called. For Christ has also suffered for you, leaving you a model that you should follow in his stead. To this, my dear friends and fellow believers, clearly listen. He says, to this you have been called. For Christ has suffered for you, leaving you a model that you should follow in his steps. Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. Who, when reviled, reviled not again. When suffering, threatened not but gave himself over into the hands of him who judges righteously. This is the Christian's template. Oh, my friend, this is critical for anyone that would seek to walk with God, as it were, beside still waters. This is the model that is our Lord Jesus Christ, to which we are commanded and called to follow. This model has and had According to Ephesians 5, 1 and 2, you and me as the beneficiaries of that devoted, loving submission to the Father. This is stated by the Spirit of God with clarity. With clarity. If you are suffering at this very moment, some difficulty you are passing through, my friend, I repeat, this is the will of God to find in a fresh new way his grace and presence as we hand ourselves over to him. This is the model that is stamped upon our fleshly natures to override and subdue it. God commands and demands honesty among the Gentiles. It's the very model that engenders harsh, harsh speech against us. People call us evildoers, think we're better than anybody else. No, my friends, but they witness our good works and it confirms within their hearts, this is good. 
This is good. This is the model we take into the workplace, regardless of the tempers or the, te- uh, the, the temperament, if, if you will, of our employer. We serve with equanimity for the glory of God. We live in such a manner that we give glory to God. We acknowledge and are sensitive to his holiness. We want praise to redound to the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, not only in this life, but certainly in the day when all men stand before God to give an account of themselves. And this scene where we suffered is replayed for them. Remember, my friends, as we are walking with God beside still waters, We serve the Most High God. We are chosen race, a kingly priesthood, a holy nation before God. And as such, we are commanded to walk in holiness. This is what holiness is, not a delineation of standards, but a spirit, a a walk, a lifestyle exhibiting works that are beneficial to people, that demonstrate grace, God's grace, even when I don't deserve what they're doing and how they're responding to me. Oh, may God give you and me the power by his indwelling spirit to be a blessing and a benefit to others in spite of their dispositions towards us. Why? Because at the end of the day, we endeavor to walk with God every day beside still waters thank you for joining beside still waters podcast with christian javois beside still waters is the quiet moment in the stillness of god's presence to receive guidance light and grace to live by faith i hope you've been helped and encouraged to press on living for the glory of god it has been a pleasure and a privilege to connect with you on this podcast to stay connected please follow Christian Javois on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks for tuning in, and we will see you on the next podcast of Beside Still Waters.